Thank you, thank you. You know, I'm very excited about being here today to talk to you about pain management strategies for the geriatric population and how we can help them to work through their discomfort zone without opioids. This is my disclosure slide. And what you may know about me, like many of you, I'm board certified in pain management. But what you don't know about me is, a few years ago, my mother was seriously injured when her doctor gave her a transferaminal epidural injection using Kenalol. This was devastating, and I became her caregiver. That's when I started on a journey, a journey to help elderly patients have better pain management. And that's really why I'm here today, because I've lived this as a daughter and a practitioner. And when you have to take care of a geriatric patient yourself, you learn a few little things, doctor, and we are going to talk about that today. So we're going to talk about, we're going to discuss in detail at least three common disease processes that involve the spine of geriatric patients. We're going to demonstrate a complete understanding of the issues surrounding the opioid crisis among the elderly, display a working knowledge of spinal bracing and how these braces, how braces can help to relieve pain. We're going to review the current literature on bracing as it relates to pain management and muscle function, review some treatment protocols for spinal bracing, and lastly, we're going to touch on the role of braces for knees and hips. Now, I see the guy on the last row, and he's saying, my God, it's 1110. Are we going to cover all that? Well, I know you've been here all week, and so I'm going to keep this lecture practitioner-friendly so that we are going to be able to do this in a timely manner, but unbuckle your seatbelts and you straighten up in that chair so you won't need a brace at the end of this lecture. Now, the geriatric population is growing. We know that. And it's estimated that between 2012 and 2050, then the United States, there would be considerable growth with the older population. But when I speak to you today, I don't want to just be given a slideshow. I want to make this real. So I want you to think about your parents, your grandparents. And no matter how young you are, I want you to think about yourself. Now, this is a test. And whoever doesn't pass this, I want them to leave right now. Who in here wants to be able to live long enough to become in the geriatric population? Show of hands. And for those on the back who didn't raise their hand, Please exit them out the right door. So but I want you to know that what I'm saying today may not apply to you today, but it certainly could apply to you by tomorrow because none of us will be forever young. So what has caused people above 50 and older to have more pain? The 70s brought about a running craze, and people were running, and some say that running increases pain in the knees and hips. There's some research that says it doesn't actually cause wear and tear of the knees, that this is due to an upregulation of the central nervous system. 
But be that as it may, older people suffer from a lot of knee, hip, and back pain. And then there's obesity that we know is a modifiable risk that increases people's risk of knee, hip, and back pain. And contact sports. People who paid these in the 1960s and 1970s had injuries at younger ages are now suffering as they are older. Because do you know that people who were in the 1970s who were teenagers will turn 60 this year? So we're not talking about a long time. Those of you who've been here all week know that there's an opioid epidemic in the United States and about 115 people die each day due to opioid-related consequences. When we look at unintended in, in, uh, consequences with increase in opioid prescribing, we see from 1991 to 2013 that with oxycodone, look how the prescriptions have increased. Dramatic increases in hydrocodone uh, prescriptions and just total prescriptions have increased over all this time period. But who was writing those prescriptions? Was it any of us? You don't have to raise your hand. That is not a test question. But looking at AARP Public Policy Institute analysis from 2015, we see that looking at patients ages 50 to 64, that 42% of them, when we looked at their source of painkillers that was that attributed to their misuse, 42% of them got those prescriptions from a friend or relative. Patients ages 65, 70% of them, the source of their painkillers for their last misuse, they got them from one or more doctors. The National Center for Health Statistics 2015 says that when you look at the number of prescriptions taken in the past 30 days from 2009 to 2012, looking at ages 65 and older, 65% of them take at least three plus drugs. So the elderly, they had increased risk of having misuse in medications. Why? 80% of them suffer from some chronic condition and they take a lot of medications. So whether it's intentional or not, just taking a lot of medications leads to a lot of drug-drug interactions and can lead to unintentional behaviors of abuse and misuse. I want to ask you, how many in the audience have had the wonderful pleasure of going to their grandmother's house at some point and seeing her make a pie? Raise your hand. Wonderful. Guy in the front, what is your name? Shane. Okay, what kind of pie did your grandmother make? Grandmother Shane? Cherry. Cherry. Okay, anybody else had? What about you? Did your grandmother make a pie? Apple. A apple. And I would guess when your grandmother, you had a, what did you want to say about your grandmother's pie? Oh, girl, are you still doing it like that? I bet we see you at a grocery store buying those blueberries. Shame on you, grandmother wouldn't like it. But back to you, Shane. Did your grandmother ever have you to taste that pie? And along the way, what would she say? Tell us what grandmama would say to you, Shane. 
What do you think? And sometimes grandmother had to add what? Different ingredients. I bet in that blueberry pie, grandmother didn't just have one ingredient, did she? She added a lot of things. And this picture here denotes just someone making apple pie with apple, cinnamon, nutmeg. They have eggs, sugar. And so a pie is made with different ingredients. So what I want to submit to you today is then how did we get stuck with pain management saying that treating patients' pain is synonymous with opioids? Patients think that if you say pain management, it equals opioids. So I submit to you today that effective pain management has to be like grandmama's pie. It has to be done with different ingredients. And what we did, we gave hydrocodone, you saw on the previous slide. We gave oxycodone, you saw on the previous slide. That was just like grandmother just adding nothing but sugar to that blueberry pie. And she would tell you, you had to have a balance, didn't she? Is your pie as good as grandmother's? I'm sorry. <laughs> and so what we need to know is that opioids, opioids should just be one slice of the pie. And so we have to change the narrative of what our patients and what our primary care doctors think, that pain management is not synonymous with opioids. I teach them, you have to make this simple. That is one ingredient or one slice of a pie. NSAIDs, one slice of a pie. It's like adding the nutmeg, adding that cinnamon. When his grandmother told him to taste it, she didn't just keep adding sugar. She added a little other thing to Shane said it was just right. Physical therapy, one slice of the pie. This is something that a lot of people don't really understand, the role of physical therapy, because all physical therapy is not created equal. But physical therapy, one slice of the pie. Injections, interventional doctors, I do interventional therapies as well, but it's one slice of the pie. And this needs to be done in well-trained hands. I've already shared with you the tragedy that we've lived, and my mother had her epidural done with an anesthesiologist who didn't understand that transferaminal epidural injections didn't need Kenalol, but it's still one slice of the pie. Surgery should be held to be at the end. It's one slice of the pie, but only after we've exhausted the other things. And I submit to you today that braces, that braces should be a part of that pie and that this is something that's usually overlooked, misunderstood, or never done. So then what are the pain generators that we talk about when we look at the elderly? We're going to talk about three things today. Chronic low back pain issues with acute exacerbations, complications from kyphosis, and cervigenic headaches. So then what causes these chronic low back pain issues with acute on chronic exacerbations? I like to make things where it's easy to remember. So I tell my patients that this is due to what I call the O's of life. Osteoarthritis, osteoporosis, overweight, overuse, occupational risk, and then secondary muscle spasms. This is the patient who comes in to you who may have chronic wear and tear, he's a roofer, and he comes in, he says, but I can't stand today, my back is hurting because he's had an acute on chronic exacerbation. Now, we need to understand, like Simon Sinek, anyone read his book, Start With Why? 
All right, then. Well, that's a book on leadership. And as health providers, we may want to read the book. And he tells you about leaders, that if you're going to be leading your team, that maybe your medical assistant or your nurses or some people aren't following your plan, is because you're focusing on what you do rather than why you do it. So Simon Sinek in his best-selling book says, we always need to start with why. So I'm starting with why. Why would a back brace work? Dr. Koaliki, in his studies at the Yale Biomechanics Lab, studied the effects of a lumbosacral orthosis on spine stability. And he looked at the EMG changes. What could you expect? We know that to keep the spine upright, that there's a certain amount of antagonistic cold muscle contractions that you must have. So what he did, he had 11 male subjects to wear a lumbar sacral orthosis for three weeks. And he looked at the changes in EMG while wearing the lumbar sacral brace. And what he found is that the brace provided significant symptomatic relief to patients wearing back pain because it reduced, reduced their instability and their muscle spasms. So the patient who comes in with acute on chronic problem with muscle spasms, you might try a brace to see if it helps because then you don't have to use as much of your antagonistic musculature because the brace, if it's an inelastic brace, can help to reduce that pain. Now traditionally, anyone that treats back pain uses these three regimens, relative rest, anti-inflammatories, and physical therapy. And I'm going to tell you how I incorporate bracing as another tool, because we need tools in order to decrease the opioid epidemic amongst the elderly. Now, so what are the benefits of bracing? With a brace, you get immediate relief. So a patient comes in, and I think they have instability and they're having back pain. I can try them on a appropriately fitted brace. And like a light bulb, if the brace is the appropriate treatment, they are going to feel better. And what does this do? This allows patients to have activities, to participate in the activities of daily living, and it creates a controlled, healing environment. If you try one, you will be amazed at how the patient says, oh my gosh, I feel better. Now I will tell you, a man designed these inelastic braces. They are not cute at all. You'll never find them at Nordstrom's. You'll never find them at Walmart. You want an inelastic brace. It's a little bulky. So sometimes you have to change the narrative, particularly to our female patients. So this is what I tell them. I say, have you ever been on a blind date? Oh, what does your friend tell you? Girl, does he have a good job. He has a nice car, and he knows how to treat a woman. When they tell you that, you know what? He may scare you when you look at him. <laughs> so I appeal to them and say, now I'm going to bring in Charlie. This is the brace. Remember that blind date? And then the elderly patient may tell me, Dr. Bragg, that's exactly the way I met my husband 50 years ago. <laughs> and they share that story with me. I said, and you're still with him today? Yeah, and I was worried about how the children going to look when I looked at him, but... <laughs> I tell you, you're right, he knows how to treat a lady. So then I put the brace on, and when it feels better, they forget how it looks because then they're able to go to Walmart 
go to Target or go to the store, wash their dishes. Because elderly patients like us, they want to be independent. And so they're able to participate in the activities of daily living when they put a brace on. And not only that, they think you're a genius. When you give them something, immediately they feel better. And so I uh, say that these are the benefits of bracing. But then why aren't you using them? If you're like me, you heard many myths about bracing. And one of the myths are that bracing causes atrophy and weakness. Haven't you heard that before? Raise your hands. All right, then these people in the back, they are nothing but good telling the truth, people. And the people up front, you never heard that? You heard it. They just don't want to raise their hands this morning. But I'm going to keep on calling on the ones that don't raise the hands. Okay. And so then they say that bracing immobilizes, that geriatrics can't tolerate braces, and that they don't help with pain relief. All of these studies have well documented that these myths are not true. But let me attack the biggest one. Azadenia did a systematic review of 35 studies that spanned it over a 40-year period. And what he wanted to do was determine whether lumbar sacral orthosis resulted in muscle weakness or atrophy. After studying those 35, reviewing those 35 studies, he did not find conclusive scientific evidence to suggest that a lumbar sacral orthosis resulted in muscle weakness or atrophy. So we know that that's a myth, that bracing does not cause muscle atrophy. So what else do you worry about? You worry about you're going to put on that big brace and am I going to be immobile? And so we look at Dr. Ackerson, who looked at orthosis as a prognostic instrument in lumbar fusion. This was a clinical study where he had 50 pre-op studies and he measured their pain before the study and after the study. And he put them in a brace and they wore the brace for three weeks. And what he found is that 31 of the 50 patients experienced significant pain relief using a brace. But the main effect was that there was a reduction of gross motions, but that it didn't immobilize them. It did not mobilize them. He waited a year and looked at these patients again after a solid fusion, and the conclusion was that the brace did not give a prognostic indicator for how the patient would do after a fusion. So there was no immobilization, and the muscles continued to work. So then, will a geriatric person tolerate a brace? I just told you the lady had been married 50 years, and it reminded her of her husband, and she's tolerating it. These braces work well to help people get him back to doing the activities of daily living. With knee braces, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, people use these braces and they can golf, they play racquetball, and they can go to the mall with their back braces and their knee braces. Now, I don't know what that is either. <laughs> hey, should we be worried? Okay, then. He's going to check it out and let us know. So we're just going to go ahead. And so, but what some people came back, I had a 70-year-old patient, male patient, who had the brace. He said, Dr. Bragg, I'm able to golf now, but I got to tell you, I felt better, but it didn't do a darn thing for my score. I said, well, how was your golfing before? Now, there's no study that says it's going to improve your score. If you couldn't play before, it's not going to do anything to the score. So I let them know you're going to feel better, 
But that score is on you. If you've been 99 above par, you're just going to stay that way. <laughs> so what is the myth that braces don't provide pain relief? As I've told you, Dr. Kellowicki at the biomechanics lab in Yale looked at braces to see what was the root cause. And we know that underlying spinal issues can cause instability. And that instability can cause muscles to spasm beyond the pain threshold. And if you give a patient an inelastic brace, this can bring their contractions down below pain threshold and can subsequently help with pain. The second thing we want to talk about is kyphosis. This is the normal spine, but the patient with curvature here, kyphosis, which is caused by degenerative disc disease, osteoporosis, compression fractures. And people with kyphosis, it's thrust their center of gravity forward. And so sometimes these patients are prone to falls. They have vital capacity issues. But the thing I want you to understand is that the brace does not correct their deformity. This just helps with dealing with their posture and is supportive. And so what it does, it reduces the load on supporting structures. It improves the balance and their tidal volumes, and it gives them some support, not a corrective measure. I want to tell you about a patient that I had who's a 70-year-old female who had severe COPD. She has kyphosis degenerative disc disease, and compression fractures. She's actually oxygen dependent. And so because she had a compression fracture and she had had degenerative disc disease, a chronic compression fracture, I tried her on a brace for her kyphosis. And she felt better. And she says, okay, I'll try it. But to my amazement, when she walked to her car with an oxygen tank, she called back to the receptionist and says, tell Dr. Bragg, I'm breathing better. Because what the brace does, it expands the chest cavity from being rounded to expanding the chest cavity, so it improves tidal volumes. And at three, weeks, three months follow-up, she is still doing better with using her um, brace without kyphosis. So spinal bracing has been shown to provide posture support, reduce secondary muscle spasms, improve balance and tidal volume, and causes of pain, but it provides a controlled, dynamic healing environment. I want to talk to you now about physical therapy and bracing. Dr. Morissette is a physical therapist who did studies at South Carolina uh, Medical School, a randomized clinical trial comparing extensible braces versus inextensible lumbar sacral braces and standard of care looking at low back pain. This was a randomized clinical trial, 98 patients. What he did, he randomized them to three groups. One group was standard care, consisting of physical therapy and medications. Another group, standard care, physical therapy, and, and uh, inextensible braces and medications. And the third group was an extensible brace with physical therapy and um, medications. And what he found, the people wore the braces for a few weeks. They took their pain assessments and did their Awastri Disability Index before they wore the brace and after they wore the brace. And what they found is that the patients who had the inextensible braces, the inelastic ones, 
they had a 4.7 times higher odds of achieving an awash score of 50% or greater improvement. And this was found in inextensible lumbar sacral braces had better improvement than extensible ones. Now what that means is usually the over-the-counter braces are extensible elastic braces and these inextensible ones are the inelastic braces. And so what this says is I tell my patients when they have a brace I want them to continue to do what the physical therapist tells them to do. I want them to continue to do their home exercises to work on their core. I want them to continue to improve their activities of daily living. And so we try to move them from a function of pain to function. And so I ask them, what goal would you like to achieve? So when they come back, we try to focus on what goal did you achieve and what are you doing better from a functional standpoint. So bracing can be an option to decrease opioids. And studies have shown, as we've talked about, that spinal braces do not cause atrophy, but they can be a good adjunct to your current treatment if the brace is inelastic. Now let's move forward. I know you were in a talk earlier this morning where they talked about the text neck. It's estimated 85% of people over than 70 have a computer or they use their cell phone. I see some of you right now with a protracted neck and that text neck. So if you need to see me after this lecture, I'll be seeing you over there in that corner. And so this is the, head, the forward head posture or text neck pain that these patients get. And they come in and they tell you they have suboccipital pain. They may have occipital headaches. They may have pain in the region of the levator scapula, this tight malfascial pain. They may have pain with the upper trap, as these people have here. And what we can do is try them with a brace to reduce their cervigenic pain. This is them protracted. If you didn't know, look at the mirror. Some of you got this look right now. Straighten it up. Oh, she's straightening it up. I thank you. Okay. And what this brace does is help to restore the normal natural posture and take the pressure off of those ligaments and supporting structures. And I said briefly, we're going to talk about osteoarthritis in hips and knees, because we know that this is very prevalent in the elderly population. And what really drives them to having a total knee is the pain. The total hip is the pain. It causes pain and functional limitations. So if we can give a brace, or unload a brace, such as this one, to unload the effective of the, uh, compartment, it may be a patient that's not a good surgical candidate or someone who doesn't want surgery, and you can lose, use an unloader brace. And I have found these to be very beneficial in treating my geriatric patients who have osteoarthritis of the knee. Here's an unloader hip brace, relatively new, been out a couple of years, and you can use this for patients who have hip arthritis to unload it and to see if they get better relief as an option to not having surgery. And so I've talked about a lot about moving people from what I say an arena of pain to an arena of function. Well, how do you do that? I do that by employing what we call motivational interviewing. This is a goal-oriented style of communication where we talk about personal motivation. And what better way to try to motivate someone than to give them an outcome that they can measure? And this is what motivational 
um, interviewing does. It uses processes such as engaging, where you establish a connection and a working relationship. It's focusing. You decide on a particular way you're going to do things. You elicit the patient's own motivation for change. Why do you want to do that? Well, you know, I want to garden. Well, you know, I want to be able to go to the store. My children are doing a lot of things for me, but if I could just buy my own groceries. So you see motivational interviewing, and then you formulate a plan for action. So what did I create? The brag factor. Now, why did I do that? I live in a military town, and elderly patients used to couldn't remember my name 20 years ago, and they would say, oh, like the Army base Fort Bragg? So if they remember that Army base, I introduce myself. I'm Dr. Bragg, like the Army base, and that keeps them coming. So you may find out something like that. Fine, why well, keeps them coming? Fort Bragg is what they do. So I created the Bragg Factor, and it empowers patients to move from an arena of pain to an arena of function. Here we ask our patients about what is a goal that you want to achieve and how can we achieve that goal and it helps them to develop problem solving skills. This is a system that has five steps. B starts with behave as if. That's where it begins because a person has to behave how they want to become. If you're behaving as a chronic pain patient, you're going to forever be in pain. So if you're going to be successful, you have to behave like a person not in pain. So I don't tell them to wake up and tell me what is their pain score. I tell them what would a patient not in pain think about doing. And that's what you want to do. Behave as if. You want to resist the urge to say, I can't go to therapy today because I'm a chronic pain patient. No, that's not acceptable. You can't complain. You have to learn how to accept no limitations. Let's work it out. Let's problem solve. Why can't you go to physical therapy? Can't your daughter take you? Can't your son take you? What can be done to help you reach your goals? And then you want to help them grow their gift. I had a patient who is a pharmacist who lost their job, a six-figure job. I would be overwhelmed and in pain too, wouldn't you? So she came to me and she was really having a lot of pain and as I talked to her, I learned that she had lost this six-figure job. That was pain, physical, financial, whatever. But as I talked to her and talked to her about her skills, as a pharmacist, she had a lot of other skills. So she needed to grow some of those other gifts of being a consultant. And once she looked at what she had, her inventory of skills, that helped her to be able to move around, to do things, to be engaged. And so I teach them in this process that is also about growing your gift. And the biggest thing is gratitude. Studies have shown that people who show gratitude are healthier. They live longer. They are more successful. So I teach my patients to have a gratitude journal. I learned this when I was the caregiver of my mother. If I got up every morning and said, Mama has your pain, what do you think she told me? Bad. Bad. If I said, oh, you're hurting now, what's your pain on the zero to 10 score? She said, the worst thing you can do is live with a pain, doctor. This is what my mom told me. That's the worst thing you can do. Every day you're measuring something. She would call and tell my sisters. Every day she's measuring something. I said, mom, we got to get the zero to 10 thing right. I'm not, I didn't get it right with my doctor. Just because you're in the house with me is not going to be any better with you either, she would tell me. So I had to change, and I don't know if the gratitude journal helped her or did it help me, because I had to get refocused. 
And so she had a gratitude journal. So we would start because she had physical limitations after uh, that epidural where she was very weak and couldn't walk. And so we had to go to a lot of therapy. And so she, as she gained function and strength, I would focus on 10 seconds every day, what I call 10 seconds of gratitude of something that she did today that she hadn't done the week before. And so a gratitude journal may be a way of moving people from a place of uh, pain to a place of function. And what I want to tell you about as we talk about pain, I want to tell you about a story I read, and it is a story of a doctor who went to a nursing home to see a lady who was a 101-year-old lady. When he got to her bed, she says, Doctor, my right leg hurts. Oh, my God, it hurts so bad. I can't walk. I can't stand. So the doctor did what we do. He did a very thorough evaluation. And at the end, he looked her in the eyes and he said, Miss Jones, I can't find anything wrong with, your, with you. You see, when you get old, things are going to hurt. But what he didn't know, Miss Jones wasn't your regular old 101-year-old lady. She was very astute. She looked at Dr. Nye and she said, well, doctor, my left leg is 101 and it doesn't hurt. <laughs> so from this story, what do we learn? That age doesn't have to accompany pain and that we have to have the tools to help it. Today, I just wanted to talk to you about how bracing can be just another tool in our tool bag because we have to have some tools to change this message that pain management is synonymous with opioids. When primary care doctors send patients to me and they say, you have to go to Dr. Bragg because I can't write it anymore. Isn't that what they tell you? They're afraid and they can't write medicine anymore. Then I call up the doctor and I say, why did you give them that message in anticipation that I'm just freely writing opioid prescriptions over here? They send them with the wrong message. They send them to pain doctors saying that you have to write the medicine so you cannot discuss other options because they've closed that out. And so I tell the patient in the first meeting, well, that's what they did. I don't know that that's what I'm going to do. We're going to discuss other options. And I'm teaching my primary care doctors in my hometown, don't send them with that message. Tell them you're sending them to me for a consultation and we will discuss what is the best option for your pain rather than me getting a fussing every day from patients with X. You know, they get us kind of fussed out because they have you set up for failure. If you don't write the oxycodone the way the primary care doctor was doing, what do they do? They're mad, aren't they? And so I kind of changed that. I tell them you're setting me up for failure. And so today I simply did the pie because we all have had experiences with our grandmothers and our mothers of making a pie. And this is an analogy to just teach you that effective pain management can be as easy as making a pie, but we have to use multiple ingredients because a good pie is not made with one ingredient. So we want to take all the ingredients and blend them together. And then together doctors, together nurses, physical therapists, we can change the narrative because until we change the narrative that pain medicine, the specialty is not synonymous with opioids, we will forever have 
an opioid crisis. Grandmothers are pretty smart and our grandmothers knew right and pain management can be as easy as making a pie. I wanted to save time for questions today and I thank you for your attention. Okay, yes, ma'am. This ma'am over here. Right. Well, there are some um, braces that you can get that are inelastic, that are um, relatively inexpensive. I've disclosed I, uh, I'm a speaker for Aspen, and Aspen has one that you may be able to talk to them about that, that you can get some for those that don't have the money. For the others, Medicare usually approves them if you document in your notes what you have tried, what they have failed, and it is your desire to try to not use opioids. Opioid is a big buzzword now, and if you put that in your notes that you're trying to reduce opioids or expose them to other alternatives, Medicare usually pays for uh, braces. But for the others, you have to talk to them about how that would work. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Right. Okay. If a patient has scoliosis, which we didn't talk about, you measure them and they have scoliosis braces. I try to just make this generic so it wouldn't be so complicated, but you can work with representatives in your area and they can train your staff, like your medical assistant can be trained how to teach the patients how to don and doff the brace and they will be able to go through training to do that in your office for you. Did that answer your question? Okay, you are, what is your specialty? Anesthesiology. Well, you may want to refer them. You could refer them to a PM&R doctor, and that PM&R doctor can then help them with the bracing, and they would have people usually in their offices trained to help them done and doff it. That's what the anesthesiologists in my neighborhood, they refer them to me, and I have my staff is trained to help, and I review it with them done and doffing uh, the braces that they need. Yes, sir. Uh, so two things. One is with the bracing and the uh, black rash issue, what was the uh, treatment protocol length that you're talking about here? Because I, I deal with chronic pain and chronic issues. Is it a forever thing that, okay, we're going to go ahead and start bracing you? Or are we going to brace you for some period of time in conjunction with physical therapy and then take a break? Well, what I tell brace, I understand. What I tell the patient is that the brace is not when you are sitting down and just uh, sitting down is for when you're doing functional things. So you use it when you're doing functional things and they can use it when they have acute exacerbations of their chronic pain. For instance, a roofer might come to me and he's fine, he has degenerative disc disease, but maybe he did two or three roofs that day, I don't know, was on a roof that day and he had a lot of spasm and pain. Then he may wear the brace that day and do his exercise. He may need it two or three times that week, but he has it for when he has acute exacerbations. And that's how you can do that. But they keep it chronically because, as you know, these people have flares, and they can use it when they're having a flare. Now, patients that have a spondylolisthesis, grade 1 or grade 2, 
may find I have a radiation technologist who's x-raying people all day. She uses it when she's at work about four hours every day. And then she does her exercises three or four times a week to maintain her core stability. But it's a chronic thing for her. And we've seen surgeons, and she doesn't want to have surgery. And the surgeon says that as long as her spondylolisthesis, she's great too, is stable. She continues with her brace, and she does that for work. And then at home, she takes it off and does things like that. And so that's the way we do that. Yes, ma'am, in the back. Yes, braces will work for them because it's going to unload the, the structures that are being flared, like the ligaments, the muscles. And as you saw the brace there, it's kind of for supportive care. And so sometimes when patients have had fusions or whatever, and they're having a lot of spasms and still instability, they just use the brace for uh, short periods of time during the day to give them extra relief of the muscle spasms and pain that's being caused. But yes, I found them to be beneficial in that population. Yes, ma'am. For the one with the cervical fusion, would be like the brace that I showed uh, on that would be a kind of semi-rigid uh, cervical collar that they can use for the patient with uh, cervical fusion. But a Philadelphia collar is sometimes more rigid than the others, but there is some called Philadelphia Miami collar. But the one we showed here was semi-rigid, and so there's an array of them. He's talking about right after surgery, they're using Philadelphia collar. If you're talking about, I thought you meant further along, and they'd had it a couple, three years ago, is the way I thought you were mentioning. Right. And so for those people, I use a semi-rigid one. But what he's saying, if a person has, like I had a 90-year-old, who was very osteoporotic, and she had a fracture, and, and her doctor, and we did put her in a Philadelphia collar. But for the traditional ones that you're talking about, they're stable but having pain, we use that semi-rigid one for them, not the Philadelphia collar is what I use. Yes, sir. Well, I recommend that they don't sleep in the brace, that I want them, again, to enhance their function. So I don't want them watching... Um, on all day long, watching with the brace on. I want them doing things, and so I don't have them just uh, laying down, sitting around with the brace. Now, some people do say sometimes they put it on, it helps them with sitting, but I'm really pushing that I want them to do functional things, and this helps them to do their activities of daily living. Okay, if you have any other questions, there's my email, and I do thank all of you for your attention, and I wish you safe travels wherever you came from. Thank you so much.